What's cracking audio friends? Welcome to the latest episode of the Abby Khan Show where I am your host, as always. And if I am not here, please call the police because I have been kidnapped, abducted and probably fed to become fat and plump like Hansel and Gretel before I am consumed in a lovely Sunday roast. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Ryan Solomon, yet another Revive Stronger coach. I went deep into Ryan's brain, not literally, didn't get up in there, but basically we talk a lot about the proxies for growth, for specifically training volume, growing muscle tissue, what's the minimum effective dose for growing muscle tissue and how you can apply that to yourself and also the sort of maximum recoverable volume on the other end of the spectrum. We talk about fast versus slow dieting, the psychological and the physiological benefits and negative impacts that that can occur and much more. So guys and girls, please enjoy this conversation with Ryan Solomon. You're listening to The Abby Khan Show, a podcast that inspires people to achieve what they once believed was impossible. My name's Abby Khan. I'm an actor, health and fitness coach, and it is my mission to connect with interesting people, share their stories, find out how they optimize their lives for success, and how you can do the same. I have yet another Revive Stronger coach on the podcast today, Mr. Ryan Solomon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. Hey, um, I'm going through your guys' coaches. Your, the, the way your structure of the, the Revive Stronger team is, is really cool because you guys are very much evidence-based, evidence-focused, putting the science back in the health and fitness industry, which I absolutely love. And I mean, it seems like common sense that we should use a lot of science in, in our industry, but we really don't, <laughs> which is bizarre to hear. So mate, for, the, for the few people that don't know who you are, can you just give us a bit of the highlight reel of your journey? Yeah, man. So... I guess a quick summary of a little bit about me is I basically back in high school, I used to play American football. So the real type of football and for that sport, we were kind of forced into lifting and I absolutely hated it. Like it was the worst thing ever. I, every time the coach would step out of the the weight room, I would like sit on the bench and just talk to friends and I just didn't take it seriously. And then for whatever reason, one coach told me, it was like, hey, you know, if you if you want to play more next year, you could really focus on lifting weights and get stronger and stuff. And I was like, all right, I'll give this a go and started seeing results, started being more consistent and then ended up losing quite a bit of weight. And I was like, man, this is awesome. And once that happened, I started seeing how every other area of my life started improving to where I was paying more attention to school. I was just kind of practicing that long-term delayed gratification in other areas of my life like okay what skills can i learn where can i get better here and everything got better and because of that experience i was like man it would be a pretty cool job if you know i could help people kind of go along that same path to where through fitness they can kind of better their lives and it's not just looking better now that's of course an awesome byproduct of this but also being able to improve your kind of entire life as well. So with kind of that background and me thinking that would be a cool thing, went to college for exercise science, got my master's degree there. Along the way, I reached out to Steve Hall from Revive Stronger, like you said earlier, and started kind of interning with him. I actually did my internship in school for Revive Stronger. That was pretty cool that my teachers let me do it kind of online and stuff. And after that internship, Steve was like, hey, you know, 
I think that we're working pretty well together. We could take on you as a kind of a, a full-time coach here. And I started coaching with him about a year and a half ago and been an online coach ever since. So aside from the, obviously the, the motivation there to get people in, I guess the, uh, the best shape of their life as, as you experienced yourself, what was an, another driving factor? So what I, what I mean by that is, is another, from a physical standpoint, did you want to essentially make people look the way that they wanted to look as well? Or was it purely from a motivation of, I can make you look better to so make you feel better? I would say, I would say the two are so like linked together to where it's like, okay, if, if you start to look better, you kind of automatically have more confidence. You start feeling better and stuff like that. But absolutely. I think it's awesome when someone can just totally physically change themselves. Like it gives, it's a very empowering thing to be able to do that. And I, I definitely think that, you know, helping people just straight up look better is awesome. But I really like that side benefit of, hey, you know, it can make all of these other areas of your life better as well. So I'm not really sure if that kind of answered no. your question there, but that's kind of where I want to fit. No, it is. It is. So touching on that, that leads into the first set of questions that I've got. So I wanted to start with looking at muscle building and specifically the impacts of higher and lower training volume. So when we're looking at training volume of the, the course of a week, is there a particular lower threshold that we need to, I guess, a minimum effective dose to be able to stimulate muscle growth? Yeah, man. So my framework for kind of thinking about training volume and what's going to be effective very much so stems from kind of Mike Isretel, Renaissance Periodization, their kind of volume landmark. So I would say definitely we probably have a lower end of volume that we kind of have to hit to where it's going to be result in muscle growth. It's going to be overloading to our muscle we're going to have that stress response we're going to recover then we're going to adapt and gain muscle tissue over time so i definitely think that we have that floor and we probably also have that ceiling that mrv that maximum recoverable volume to where we can't just keep doing more and more volume and keep kind of getting better and better so i i absolutely think that we do have that kind of lower bound and that upper bound how would you figure that out where your lowest, I guess the minimum effective dose is? How would you figure that out as a, not necessarily a newbie, you might have been training around for a year, you know, just dicking around, doing little bits here and there. How do you, if you're getting serious and go, cool, I want to figure out how, what is the minimum amount that I need to be able to grow? Yep, absolutely, man. I I, I was thinking about going into all these things, but I, I thought I just kind of <laughs> let it light up for itself. So there's kind of three main things that I look at for, okay, do we think that we're kind of doing enough volume here? And these these proxies also stem from Dr. Isertel, and one of them is kind of just straight up muscle soreness or fatigue. So in the muscle you trained, did you get a little bit of soreness? Did you get a little bit of fatigue? And there's some muscle groups that don't really tend to get sore. Like someone might tell me that, hey, I could do like 20 sets in a single session for my delts and they still wouldn't get sore. Well, for muscles like that, I like to think about, okay, did you feel some fatigue the following day? Were you doing stuff around the house and you're like, okay, my, my delts fatigued a little bit earlier there, or it could even be like muscle tightness. So say you train your chest on Monday and then on Tuesday, 
you know, it's not really sore, but when you flex it, you kind of feel a little bit of a tightness sensation. You feel like it was kind of overloaded a little bit. That's kind of one indicator I look at. A second indicator is just the kind of muscle pump. So when you train that muscle in that session, did you get some sort of pump? Was there some sort of kind of cellular swelling going on? And that could be a potential sign of some kind of homeostatic disruption or you overloaded the muscle doing enough volume to kind of cause that stress response of, of growth there. And then the third one, did the session just subjectively feel pretty challenging for that muscle? Like for an intermediate lifter, someone that's been in the gym a little bit while they kind of have a pretty good idea of, okay, was that session fairly challenging? And I think that if you can check the box to at least a couple of these variables, like, okay, I had a little bit of fatigue. I got a pretty decent pump and it felt pretty difficult. I think that's a pretty good sign that, Hey, that's probably somewhere on the lower end of what's going to be an effective dose for you. What would you say if someone doing it, let's go chest, for example, and they couldn't get a pump or they couldn't feel a pump. Is that a, is that a, a sort of must as we hit, try to hit those those three check boxes? What happens if you you hit the other two but you can't hit that one? So you're saying that say they they can't get a pump, but it feels pretty challenging and they get a little bit of soreness and a little bit of fatigue. Yeah, like the next day, like they can definitely tell, like okay, I I did something, but I couldn't necessarily at the time feel like my my A cup went to a D cup. <laughs> yeah, man. So in that situation, the number one thing that I would probably look at is what their kind of technique looks like and what their form looks like for the lift. So if they're having a difficult time feeling the muscle and they still got some soreness and it still felt hard, to me that might be a sign that that soreness might have just came from, you know, more kind of not necessarily like that deep muscle soreness that kind of feels good, but kind of more that structural structural fatigue to where – Maybe your knees are a little fatigued and stuff like that. So number one, I'll be like, hey, let's check out that technique. Let's make sure we're working through a full range of motion. Let's make sure that we're you know, trying to squeeze the target muscle group, that sort of thing. And once we kind of check that out, then we kind of follow the same process. Okay, was the pump a little bit better? Did you feel anything else there? And kind of go from there. Do you think exercise selection could be one of those things like certain exercises biomechanically just might not favor certain people? Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely think that certain exercise exercises lend themselves a little bit better to kind of different body types and that sort of thing. So I know that during my during college, I coached a lot of high school volleyball players and they're really tall they're not really comfortable with their body yet like it's it's kind of awkward and tried to get them to do like a a really technical lift like even even a back squat or something like that very challenging and for someone like that if our goal is to kind of build muscle we might do a lot better with something like a leg press or something like that so i absolutely think that you can play around with exercise selection to figure out exercises that work a little bit better for you now, one thing that I would say is that it's important to kind of give an exercise its kind of fair shake and to keep an exercise in for at least a little while. So maybe a month or two to really give it a shot because there's a lot of people that, you know, 
say for example we we'll we'll try out barbell rows and they've never never really done them before and the first couple times you do it you're still trying to kind of figure out how to do a row how to engage your back while you're rowing and over time a lot of times those exercises actually you get a better and better kind of connection with those exercises and stuff like that so give it its fair shake but if after a couple months you still feel like i really think all this exercise is doing is adding a lot of kind of systemic fatigue and not really stressing my muscle very well then swap it out pick a new one and go from there is there anything to suggest that potentially people with longer levers might work better on machine isolation based movements um, and you know shorter people might work better on compound lists is there anything to suggest either of those paradigms so i'm i'm not necessarily a huge like biomechanics expert or anything like that so i'm sure like someone that specifically has studied biomechanics and like has their degree in that and everything would give a lot better answer here but i would say that anecdotally it definitely seems like people that tend to have longer limbs and are taller and that sort of thing might have a more difficult time with something like a squat or something like that even sometimes for them a bench press doesn't feel good like if if someone's this is gonna no one listening to this is going to be able to tell what i'm talking about what when someone's elbow like goes far <laughs> beyond their where kind of the bench is in a barbell bench press so like their humerus goes way behind their back sometimes that can really kind of bother someone's shoulder and stuff like that so definitely i would say anecdotally it seems like taller individuals longer limbs might have a more difficult time with squats and some of these other lifts but i i'm not sure i would say just like blank blanket statement yeah. if you're tall you're gonna have a hard time with squatting for instance because there's definitely some people that are taller and still do a really good job with it but you might start looking into maybe you have to elevate your heels a little bit or do some of those other things so you can still get in good positions for those exercises oh, perfect so if we look at the other end of the spectrum relative to lower volume how do we figure out the higher higher volume where's our where's our genetic ceiling yep absolutely so if we look at the other end of this our maximum kind of recoverable volume i think that the number one thing to kind of look for here is your performance in the gym is if your performance in the gym is decreasing from session to session then there's a chance that you are not kind of fully recovered there so number one i look at your kind of training performance but I also look at kind of soreness and fatigue, but in the opposite, are you getting any overlapping soreness and fatigue and that sort of thing? So if you trained your chest on Monday and then on Thursday, your performance is down and you have overlapping soreness, you have a little bit of overlapping fatigue, that can also be a sign that, hey, you probably hit that kind of maximum limit for yourself there. And then kind of lastly for this, I also look at kind of, factors of potentially kind of systemic fatigue and this one's kind of tricky because literally everything in your life can lead to this and these things include things like you're not able to sleep very well or you're just more irritable throughout the day you just kind of feel generally more stressed out some of these you might notice if you're really overreached in your training but you might also notice these things if you're just going through a stressful period of your life and have a lot of other stuff going on. So I would say that one's a little bit more tricky, but 
I would say for certain if your performance is going down, you're feeling generally beat up, and you have a little bit of soreness, a little bit of overlapping fatigue, that's a pretty good sign of you're nearing that MRV. And then if your sleep's a little disrupted, you're a little bit more irritable, that could be playing a role as well. But those are a little bit more tricky to kind of tell what's going on. So now we've figured out the the lowest, so the minimum effective dose and the maximum recoverable volume. Someone's trying to build muscle tissue. Would you suggest that they essentially have a, a linear periodization program? I'm going, cool. If I need to, if I can go 10 sets of uh, per body part per week is the lowest end, 20 sets is the upper end. Do I go 10 sets, 11 sets, 12 sets, blah, 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 up to 20, take a deload and then repeat that whole protocol? Or would you go up to the 20, come back down to say 11 sets and then go up to 21, then deload? How would you structure that? I'll think about that. So I think it makes the most sense to start on the lower end and kind of scale up. And one reason that I think this is the case is because it kind of takes advantage of that kind of a repeated bout effect to where we do a certain amount of volume and we adapt to that kind of volume. We're able to recover from our following sessions a little bit better. So for example, say you do two sets of lunges in week one, well, you might get a little bit sore from that. But if you add one set here, one set there by week five or six, you might be able to end with four or maybe even five sets. But if you started with four or five sets in week one, you'd probably be wrecked and you'd probably kind of under recovered in your next session. And you might run the risk of just kind of being behind on recovery, the entire kind of mesocycle there. So I definitely think it makes sense from a recovery standpoint to kind of progressively increase that volume. And interestingly, a, a recent study just came out on training volume to where they had the particulars might be a little bit off here because it was a couple weeks ago when I read it. I totally forget like every study I read, but I'm not like Greg Knuckles to where he could just like rattle off every single stat of every study with the authors and stuff like that. So you're getting none of that from me, but the general kind of concept will make sense. So they, with one of their legs, they just did an absolute number of sets. So I think it was like 20 sets for one of their legs. And then for their other leg, they did a 20% increase in volume from what they did previously. So they self-reported how much, how many sets they did for their, for their legs the, the previous week, and they just increased it by 20% for that leg. So one leg was a relative increase in volume, and the other just an absolute 20 sets. And what they noticed was hypertrophy was a little bit better with that relative increase. So for me, that might be an indicator that, hey, you know, just jumping to a certain level of volume that you've never done before and it's far greater than what you've done before might not be the best idea. And the best idea might be to kind of gradually kind of work it up there. And along with that, it kind of also works really well with the kind of principle of progressive overload to where each and every week we're kind of adding a little bit more stress as we can recover from it. And we're kind of overloading ourselves based on our kind of new recovery capabilities each and every week. So I definitely think starting on the lower end and working up to that point to where, okay, now I'm starting to see some overlapping soreness. My performance looks like it's starting to kind of taper down. Okay, at this point, we can kind of deload, chill for a week, and then get back to it. When you do that that deload, where do you go with volume? Do you go straight back down to the lower end or do you come about halfway? 
So during my deload weeks, I cut volume in half from week one. So if if they were at 10 sets for their chest on week one, I will probably cut it to around five or six sets in that deload week. So it's a pretty significant drop in volume. And then along that deload week, we'll use a little bit more kind of reps and reserve. So reps and reserve might be around like three to five in that deload week, but we really cut down that volume. And one thing we noticed with that is for one, it drops a lot of fatigue as volume is probably the leading kind of driver of fatigue. Now your relative intensity or how close you're training to failure also plays a role into that, but volume's probably the biggest one. So that's kind of the main thing I want to make sure we cut. So it drops that fatigue and it also seems like it, somewhat kind of resensitizes you a little bit. So this idea has kind of been started to go around a little bit. I know Dr. Cody Hans talked about it a little bit to where maybe we would grow better over time if we took phases of lower volume periods and we kind of resensitize ourselves a little bit. I'm kind of in the middle on that one. I think theoretically it might make sense, but things in theory don't always work out in practice. So it's, it's difficult to see there. And the type of person I coach usually isn't like I, I coach more recreational lifters that are still really serious about getting the gains, but they're not like, okay, I want to compete each and every season. So they have a lot of other stuff going on. It might make, might not make as much sense to strategically plan out each and every phase, like really particularly, but back to deloads here, they might kind of resensitize you a little bit as well. So when we come back into that next phase, it's also important to make sure you you don't just go straight back to that level of volume that you were previously at. Start on that lower end of your MEV again and kind of work progressively up again to higher and higher volume levels. When you do the DLO, would you reduce intensity at all or keep that there just to give the, the stimulus there? So for intensity, I usually base that off of our reps in reserve. So I'll, I'll keep rep ranges the same. But I'll say, hey, in this deload week here, we're going to have more reps in reserve. So reps in reserve throughout a mesocycle, for me anyways, earlier on in a mesocycle, we'll train a little bit further from failure. And then the closer that we get to kind of that deload, the end of our mesocycle, the more and more we push closer to failure. So in weeks one and two, it might be three or four reps from failure. In weeks three and four, it might be kind of, one to two reps. And then in our final couple weeks, it might be pretty dang close to failure. And then in that deload week, I'll keep rep ranges the same, but we will increase the reps from failure. So we will bring down the, the weight a little bit there just so we can hit our reps and reserve targets. I always think about those studies that you mentioned earlier and think I would hate to be a part of that because like if you go through something and say you're doing a single leg leg extension and for 20 reps uh, per 20 sets per week and the other one at 10 to see the difference i come out the back of it and be like what the fuck just happened like my legs are completely different sizes now because you'd have to figure that out dude some of the stuff they put people through these studies are brutal like i know there was one study there it had them do three back to back to back wingate tests and if you're not familiar with that that is basically an all-out sprint on a bike for I think it's like 60 seconds straight, which that it might not seem that hard to you, but like 
it is brutal and it increases load as you go throughout the test so it's harder and harder to pedal and you'll get you'll get off the bike and you'll want to vomit a little bit and your legs will be just done and they did three back to back it's it it can be crazy mm. yeah i always admire anyone who does a um a test such as that or even like a true hit session Whereas, uh, yeah, it's very prominent nowadays to, you know, do a lot of like Tabatas and things like that. It's like, I'm doing high intensity interval training. I'm like, nah, you're not because you're resting 10 fucking seconds. Do you know what I mean? And if you're resting 10 seconds, you're doing 10 reps in your first set and you're doing two reps in your last set. Is that really a a relative level of intensity? No, it's not. Um, Absolutely. I wanted to touch next on, on fat loss. So basically from a physiological perspective, going fast, versus going slow. I know, especially here in Australia, that we have a tendency to use a lot of aggressive deficits. And at times, like I think they've got their place, but what are the physiological implications of going too fast? I guess, so if you're taking someone, we find out their BMR and go, okay, we're gonna whack you into a, and you figured out their physical activity level as well on top, let's whack you into a 40% deficit. What are some of the, the negative factors of jumping into that for a long period of time? Absolutely. So I think that for lifters and people that, you know, they want to maintain their muscle mass while they're dieting, one of the biggest things that we want to look out for is the risk of losing muscle. And interestingly, lean body mass, the amount of lean body mass someone loses during a deficit can be related to how how well they're able to recover following the diet and certain energy expenditures and stuff like that following the diet. But One thing we want to make sure we do is keep as much muscle as we can. And it seems as though if we're trying to lose at a rate much faster than about 1% of our body weight per week. So if you are 200 pounds, I know pounds, you (laughs) are probably kilos. So if you're, I think that's like 80 kilos. So if you're 80 kilos and you want to lose 1% of your body weight, that would be 0.8 kilos per week. It seems like going much above that might not be the best idea as we might start potentially digging into our muscle reserves a little bit. Now, it also seems like the more aggressive we get with the diet, the more potential kind of negative adaptations to dieting we might get. And this could be potentially things like hunger, we might reduce our activity levels and we might start seeing disrupted sleep and some of these other not so great factors. Now, I would say that it's very dependent on the situation and what's going on because if someone only plans to diet for four to six weeks and they it's going to be pretty quick okay then we can we can push that thing pretty quickly to the maximum and interestingly there's also a little bit of research to where if someone's quite a bit overweight putting them in a more aggressive deficit at the start sometimes helps long-term adherence to the diet because putting them in that aggressive deficit actually allows them to see results pretty quickly. So if someone has quite a bit of weight to lose, it might not be the worst idea to actually be a little bit more aggressive at the start when they have more weight to lose and then kind of slowing that down a little bit as they continue through the deficit. It allows them to see some of that progress and it might actually benefit adherence. And I know Martin McDonald, he's got a lot of good stuff on fast versus slow fat loss. And he has mentioned before that there's usually not a 
huge difference in hunger levels if you compare kind of a moderate deficit to a little bit more of an aggressive one. So if someone dieted on, say, three or 400 calorie deficit per day, their overall hunger levels might not actually be that much different if you compare that to seven or 800 calories. So there's probably kind of a sweet spot in there to where you're dieting aggressive enough to see some progress, see some results, but not so hard to where it's just unsustainable. You're not going to be able to stay in that sort of deficit for very long at all without falling off the rails. You're seeing a lot of these negative adaptations to dieting, like food focus, lack of sleep, your training performance is just kind of in the shitter. Like you don't want to go too aggressive there, but I would say there's certain situations where leaning towards aggressive makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about that, that sort of increasing ghrelin our, our hunger hormone is that <clears throat> when I trained for my last photo shoot, there was a moment there where I was eating considerably less food, but I didn't feel any hungrier or any different, really. It's just that performance started to decline a fair bit, and I felt that, but I didn't feel any hungrier necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that performance aspect's a pretty big one too because people, some people, if they bring their, like, their carbohydrates below a certain level, they just know their performance kind of goes in the shitter. So that's definitely something to pay attention to. But like you said, sometimes when you're dieting, like dieting just kind of in general can kind of suck. So it doesn't tend to suck that much more if you just diet a little bit more aggressively. So it can help. But like I said, there's, there's kind of that balance there of, hey, you know, just doing a quote unquote starvation diet to where you try to sustain that for months on end, probably not going to work out very well. And also on the flip side, just kind of dabbling, being kind of half in a deficit, half out of a deficit and being in like a hundred or 200 calorie deficit a day. I'll be like, man, let's, let's actually get in there, get some work down and then get out of this fat loss phase and get to building muscle or something like that. Yeah. I think a lot of people do try and spend that time within dabbling, like not knowing really what to do. And you just like, just pick one, Go a little bit more aggressive. Let's actually see some results. Let's let's get a little bit motivated and then let's go into the, the next sort of phase rather than dicking around. It's like just make a decision, get lean, get big, like do whatever and then uh, and then maintain and then go, cool, I am where I need to be. Now I'm just going to sit here at my, at my maintenance. Yep, I 100% agree for sure. So if someone, for example, if we talk, just briefly talked about carbohydrates there and driving performance, if, for example, someone was, say, okay, if I have less than 150 grams of carbohydrates per day, I feel good. Blood sugar, um, glucose is fine throughout the day. I feel good from an energy perspective, just in general life. However, that at the same time is impeding performance. What would you say to that person? Would you, I guess, try to go, you know what, let's try and drive a little bit more carbohydrates by about 10, 20 grams or so around workouts and see if that affects performance and then also doesn't give a negative effect to the rest of day, the day? So that is definitely a little bit tricky. I think that there's probably going to come a point in the deficit to where if you've lost enough total body weight, the abs- your absolute performance in the gym is probably likely to some degree decrease a little bit. Like I would love to say that, hey, we're going to lose 30 pounds. You're going to be just as strong. You're going to be totally fine. But 
usually we start seeing things go down a little bit. Now you can can look at your absolute strength. So you can look at how much weight you're lifting per kilo of body weight. And oftentimes we're still able to maintain that. But if we maintain that, that also means that the absolute weight on the bar is probably going down. So for one, I would say that at some point, it's probably maybe somewhat unrealistic depending on how long the diet is, how much we're losing to maintain our absolute strength across the board. Now, I would say that, like you said, if someone is noticing that decrease in performance, I might be like, hey, you know, this decrease in performance seems like it's a little bit more than what I'm usually seeing in a typical fat loss phase. What are your, what's your carbohydrates around your workout? Are you trying to utilize those a little bit better here have you have you done anything like that and just have a conversation with a client about that and often if we can front load a little bit of our carbs in front of that workout a little bit better that can help now i'm not sure if that's just a placebo that makes them feel better and that works out that way or whether it's on a physiological level maybe the blood sugar is a little bit more we have that blood glucose and that's helping i would say that that stored glycogen, if our daily calorie or daily carbohydrates are the same, it shouldn't really necessarily impact that a whole lot, but we might be getting some benefits there as there's certain studies that will look at just having like a carbohydrate mouth rinse during a workout and that even seems to benefit performance above a placebo. So there could be something to having like just 10 grams of carbohydrates in a intro workout shake and sipping on that. Some people really like doing that. So I absolutely think that playing around with that timing, seeing if it helps is a strategy. Now, if someone's losing at our target rate of weight loss, they're having a little bit of intra workout carbs and their carbs are kind of around their workout a little bit and they're doing a good job from a timing standpoint and their performance is still dipping down a little bit but they're feeling good day to day and everything else feels good. And as long as it's not like a total drop in performance, I'm probably going to leave things where they are and, you know, just kind of accept that, Hey, we might have some drops here and there, but kind of in total, in aggregate, we should be on an relative basis, still maintaining that strength pretty well. So if we're looking at the other end of the spectrum from fast to slow, fat loss, what are some of the physiological benefits and also some of the detriments that that can have as well from a psychological perspective? Yeah, so I really like where you ended that question with the psychological detriments, but to start on kind of the the physiological benefits of going a little bit slower, well, we might just notice that we don't get as many of these kind of negative, negative adaptations to diet. So we might not see as significant changes in hormone levels and some things that you mentioned earlier with ghrelin and leptin and even our sex hormones and stuff like that, we might not see as much of a, a hard drop with that. Now, what's interesting is that could very well over time, it might end up being similar. So say someone diets very aggressive for eight weeks and we compare that to dieting slowly for 16 weeks. Well, in that eight week deficit, we might see more negative responses like physiologically to where your body's fighting you pretty hard to lose this weight in those eight weeks. But in those following eight weeks, we might be able to recover that pretty well. And if you compare both approaches over the course of that 16 weeks, 
things might kind of work themselves out a little bit. So I definitely think that that slower approach, you might not get those kind of negative adaptations working against you as much. And if you're making sure to lose slowly enough so you don't risk muscle loss, like not more than 1% of your body weight per week, then you can have those benefits there. But I, I also think that, hey, you know, it's important to look at the big picture and compare that to the opportunity cost of, hey, if you d- diet a little bit more quickly here, you might be able to get out of the diet sooner and recover yourself a little bit better, start putting on muscle a little bit better here. But there's definitely that kind of give and take of you don't want to necessarily go too slow here to where you're just trying to avoid every single negative adaptation that might happen, but you also don't want to go crazy aggressive with it. And to kind of go to the second part of your question, I think it was kind of the the negatives of really prolonging that diet and kind of going really slow. So I think this is a, a really good one. And I would say that when you're in a diet, it's somewhat just kind of weighs on you mentally a little bit, regardless of kind of how fast or how slow the diet you're, you just kind of feel a little bit more restricted when you're in a diet. Maybe you can't do as much things socially. Maybe you're thinking about food a little bit more because you're dieting here and that can kind of weigh on you a little bit more. So I definitely think that that would be a benefit for leaning towards that more aggressive approach to kind of get in, get out. You can be a little bit more social sooner and get everything going a little bit sooner. But like I said, kind of that that balance in there there's probably that sweet spot to where maybe we're losing about half to one percent of our body weight per week we're kind of in that sweet spot to where we're not going super super slow but we're not also going like crazy aggressive with it that's usually where i land with things no perfect beautiful i guess you knowing your own psyche would probably help a hell of a lot if you know that you're the type of person that could just slug things out maybe you're just a small small deficit and not get too many negative adaptations is the right way for you but if you know you're like I hate dieting. Okay, cool. Let's go aggressive. Let's go in there for four, six weeks, get out, and and you can enjoy life a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I would add to that is, you know, knowing your psyche on that side of things is definitely important. Then also knowing, like, if you're coaching a client that has a history maybe of, of binge and restrict, so they have a history of not eating much food at all and then kind of going overboard with things and binging, then in that scenario, it might be better to take that steady approach a little bit, that slower and steadier approach. So you're not necessarily tempting to kind of get caught in that loop again of dieting really aggressively, coming back up, really aggressive and back up. But I think if you stay in that range of kind of 0.5 to 1% of your body weight loss per week, that kind of keeps you in that steady range. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about building reputation, especially in the health and fitness industry where it's just so overly saturated with absolute dickheads. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is, but but also a lot of brilliant people are out there as well. But how do you think about building reputation in in this specific industry? Yeah, man. So I I definitely think that there's good and bad in the industry like yourself like i mean there's there's people doing great things that are very generous with their time and they know a shit ton and then you also get the other side of things to where people for whatever reason just have a really good physique and they're able to kind of pump cookie cutter programs out to people and stuff like that and 
the way that I've built my reputation, like I, I'm not saying that I'm an expert, like brand builder or anything like that, but I feel like this, this phrase has been really overdone, but I also think it's true and providing kind of valuable content to people and stuff that actually helps them out. That's probably what's going to help you in the long run. So with every post you're doing and when you, when you put stuff out there to the public, making sure that you're trying to actually provide something that helps the person that's going to re- be reading that and putting yourselves in their shoes and kind of thinking through, okay, if I was at maybe their level, where would, what would I be thinking about? What's going to kind of help them? And I think if you consistently do that, then that's really going to help you over the long term. And, you know, I think, I think people can pick up on bullshit too, man. Like I, I think that, you know, at first you might get sucked into kind of the, the influencer trap of, Hey, check out my ads, stuff like that. What you're doing stuff like that. You kind of get sucked in that, that cause you don't know enough yet to kind of know what makes sense or you don't know whether someone is like, are they speaking in a way that sounds like they're at least thinking pretty critically about stuff and they're open-minded to new ideas and stuff like that. Or are they like, no, this is the right way. And it's because I said so and that sort of thing. And over time, I think people really pick up on that. And I think that as long as you're focusing on actually helping the person that's going to be consuming your content, that goes a really long ways at building your reputation. And I would say for me, one, one of the biggest things that has helped is teaming up with other people in the industry and like teaming up with revive stronger. Like that's almost an automatic, okay, this guy must be pretty credible because he's with revive stronger. now having a degree, stuff like that, that absolutely helps as well. I mean, there's some really nice courses out there too. I've heard great things about like Martin McDonald's course and mental Henselman's course and that sort of thing. And educating yourself as long as you do that and you try to help your viewer. I think it comes across over time taking that strategy it's not the overnight strategy. You're not going to probably blow up as much as Stubble Bite posted their ads on Instagram. But, you know, over time, I do think that that, that pays out and people can <clears> see through that <throat> bullshit over time. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, definitely agree. I think the industry's definitely changed even in the last sort of like three to five years but from, from where it was. Uh, I mean, probably even the last 12 months, it's changed quite dramatically in terms of people asking more questions and, and trying to filter things out a little bit. And I think it's important for people listening to to know that they can question things, know that they can say, hey, look, I why are you doing what you're doing? Because I guarantee you that most people that are putting out information that, that um, perceive like they know what they're talking about wouldn't be able to give you an actual scientific reason. Not that you have to have, again, a PhD or anything like that, but you need a certain level of education. And it's not like you're going to go to a mechanic and say, hey, like someone comes to me and says, hey, you're a mechanic. I'm like, well, yeah, I can change your tires. Not a mechanic. I can change your tires though. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? So right. it's not like going to a an influencer or not even necessarily an influence, but someone who's on social media pro- providing a product or a service that's going to help you improve your health and well-being and your aesthetics and saying, hey, why are you doing what you're doing? And they have no idea. Well, you probably shouldn't be buying it from that particular person. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree. And, you know, like the stuff that we, we deal with, like this is somebody's body. This is how they look. This is a big impact on their entire life. And 
you know, I think that that should definitely be taken seriously. And, you know, I would say before you hire a coach or you look for someone for some help, make sure that you do your kind of own due diligence of kind of going through their content. Okay. Are they, do they sound reasonable at least? And then having a consultation with them, asking them these questions, like you said, that can go a long ways in starting to trust someone for not just kind of a a fly by night influencer that wants to kind of take your money and run. Yeah, I think I think we're in this this age that because we want results yesterday, that we want the the thirty day program that's going to get you in the best shape of your life. You're just like, dude, you've yeah. spent five years fucking your life up and your health. Do you think thirty days is all that it takes? Like, think about that logically. It makes no sense. So why would you want to try a thirty day program? You know, it makes zero sense. Yeah, I one hundred percent agree. You like, you've gained. Say someone's quite overweight it's like okay you've you put on this weight over the last 30 years to take it off in just a few weeks that's probably not the most practical thing in the world so i i 100 agree for sure man like if someone's like obese or, or very overweight and someone can give me abs in 30 days geez i'll give you my kid never mind a thousand dollars do you know what i'm saying like in a, without fucking up my health yeah absolutely agree man for sure so in terms of building that reputation, it looks like authenticity is a, a big part of that. How do you stay authentic and not get caught in that trap of, okay, I, I, I really want to be genuine and authentic, but I know that if I put out you know, a picture of my abs and say, buy this program, someone will still do that. Yeah, so that's, that's definitely a tricky one. Something that I think is definitely going around right now too is kind of like fake authenticity to where people are just like, oh, I'm so authentic. Look at how authentic authentic I am. And it's like the second you try to like be super authentic is the second that you are just acting. And I feel like there's some people that are just like trying to manipulate people's emotions towards like, look at how authentic I am and stuff like that. And that definitely bothers me. So there's kind of that sweet spot there towards like, you know, obviously you kind of have to be yourself and stuff like that, but trying to go overboard with it might, might not be the best idea either. But I would say that one of the best things that you can do is remember, you know, you're playing the long game here. You are, you are in this for hopefully a long-term career. And yes, you might be able to post a picture of your abs and, sell some programs today. But if that product isn't good, the more people that you sell it to right now, the quicker that people are going to realize that you're just a bullshitter and the quicker that you're going to see things turn in the other direction. So yes, you could make a quick buck right now, but if you don't play that long game and you don't actually provide something that adds value to somebody else, then over the long run, you're not going to do very well. So try to keep in mind playing that long game and, you know, actually providing something that's going to help somebody. Brilliant. I wanted to now delve into a couple of your daily routines, how you optimize your life for success. Even if you may not have a routine, um, what does the, the first sort of one to three hours of your morning look like? Is it structured? Is it just winging it? Yeah, man. So it's, it's definitely got some structure, but 
I feel like if I have it too structured, that it just kind of stresses me out a little bit. So I, I, there's structure there, but basically I am one of those people that's always been an early riser and I get up pretty early. So usually around about quarter to four is when I get up. And I also don't view that as like a badge of honor. Like I think that like there's people that just work better in the morning and then there's people that work really well kind of late at night. And I don't care when you are productive throughout the day, like as long as you're getting done what you need to get done and that sort of thing. So I lean towards early morning, but I don't think that's a requirement for people to be successful or anything like that. I definitely like it, but that's kind of my approach there. And my first kind of hour of the day, I usually spend it working on trying to kind of develop a new skill or learning something, whether it's reading or something like that. So right now in particular, with everything going on, I've actually been trying to teach myself how to code. So it's been really frustrating and really challenging, but I like stuff like that. It's like, I like intellectually challenging stuff like that. So kind of the first hour of my day has been kind of kept off to that. And I just think that the more you learn, the better you get at learning and the more skills you develop, the better it is and the better it can kind of go in all areas of life. So that's what I've been doing in kind of that first hour. And then usually after that, it's straight to client check-ins and kind of getting a lot of that work done as well. So by like eight o'clock in the morning, I have an hour of working on a new skill. And then I also have a few hours of client work done and I'm really set up well for the day. And then usually after that I lift. And then when I get back from lifting, it's like, I kind of got the rest of the day to be much more flexible in what I have to do here. Like whether it's hopping on a podcast or something like that, you know, it, it works out well. And what does a typical day of eating look like from you? Meal by meal specific. What are we, what are we delving in? Divulging into? (laughs) I love it. So I literally eat like the same foods every single day. So my first meal of the day is usually eggs and then some potatoes because that's also like my pre-workout meal. I usually have that around five, five thirty, And then I go in and lift a couple hours after that around seven thirty, eight o'clock, somewhere in there. And then following that it is oatmeal mixed with yogurt and a protein shake. And I also have an apple alongside of that. And then for lunch, it's kind of a weird combination, but it's like cottage cheese and then a side of like either chicken or tuna or something like that. Like it's, it's weird, but it gets the job done and it works with everything and have some almonds and some veg with that meal as well. And then kind of middle of the afternoon, I'll have a protein shake and then like around six or seven, I'll have my final meal. And that's usually like some sort of meat, whether it is beef or some sort of fish, something like that, usually with some veg. I kind of tend to keep that meal a little bit lighter because for me personally, I like having that a little bit towards bed. I don't like going to bed with a full stomach because I actually notice that I just get up during the night and start sweating and stuff like that. So it helps me out a little bit. So yeah, a little lighter meal there before bed and it's kind of my day. So what about the the back end of the day in terms of routine? Do you have any specific wind down, jumping into that parasympathetic state, optimized recovery style of routine? Yeah, man. So I'm someone that has never been a great sleeper. Like 
I'm the type of guy that will sit in bed and just like to think about things and that sort of thing. So the number one thing that has helped me with that is reading until my eyes start getting tired. So like I'll finish that last meal, say around seven, seven thirty, and then I'll usually read for about an hour, an hour and a half. And I will notice that once my eyes start getting really heavy and I'm getting really tired there, then I'm kind of ready, go to bed and that's kind of my my specific wind down routine that helps me out there. But you know, some people like watching some Netflix before bed that helps them sleep and stuff like that. So I would just say find something that kind of chills you out, relaxes you, and helps you go to bed. I would be interested in your answers for this. Like, how do you optimize your stuff? Can I ask you that? Yeah, absolutely. No one's asked me before. Um, cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a give and take conversation. What are we talking morning or evening? I want to hear your full day. What's <laughs> give me. Give me your morning routine, how that looks, and then give me your evening routine, and if there's anything else in there that you think really helps, let's hear it. So I poop every day at nine, no, I'm joking. Um, so, um, <laughs> so I'm a super early rider too, so sort of 3 a.m. is when I get up um, every day. Um, obviously with, with podcasts and stuff, it's very random. Like So for example, this morning um, I was up at 12.30 a.m. Um, shooting, shooting podcasts, but I'll always... One question. What time is it for you right now? Uh, what is it? It's 6 a.m. And I've shot... This is the third podcast today. Jesus, man. You're you're, you're definitely a doer. I can already, already <laughs> tell from just talking to you here, man. All, All right. right, continue. So generally, generally around 3 a.m. unless it's podcast and then it's going to be going to be up before that. Um, the, the, the difficulty being in Australia is that most of my guests are overseas. So it's always going to be crazy times. Um, so 3 a.m. wake up jump from there weigh myself every day um became a habit after as you know yourself like prepping for a photo shoot or a show so i just do it all the time now and it prevents me from really fucking up if i've messed up the night before or a couple of days before i'm like oh god i shouldn't have done that so (laughs) weigh myself accountable yeah exactly exactly uh weigh myself shower black coffee and then what's interesting is this has only happened recently is I'll just get straight, I'll do some visualization. So I don't know if you can see just there on the wall, I've got like a bit of a vision wall of everything I want to achieve with life. Very visual, so I I have to see, I've got a whiteboard opposite me as well. It has to be written down. I have to physically be able to see what I I want to do and what I need to do to accomplish whatever I want sort of in life. Um, So do that and then basically the first, after I do a bit of 10 minutes of, 10, 20 minutes of visualization, gratitude, things like that, I, I just jump straight into the the deep work. So first thing in the morning for, for around the two, three, four hours, however long it is, depending on what I need to do, it's just that work, just get it done as, as much as I possibly can. And then from there, it'll be breakfast, which will be a pre-workout meal. Um, do you want to hear my breakfast? Hell yeah. So breakfast is a weird one. So I, I, it's pretty much like baby food. So what I basically do is take a bowl, throw in some protein powder in there, Himalayan sea salt, a scoop of create, five grams of creatine in there, add some water, mix that up. And then I get like rice cakes, but I crush the rice cakes up in the bag. Yeah. Like to the like nothing, like to those like rice puff type things and add the rice cakes in there. Mix all that up, um, add some banana in there, peanut butter and honey. And it is mind-blowing. I literally have it every single day for like the last... That sounds good. It's insane. You should try it. It's absolutely insane. So that'll be the pre-workout meal. Then generally go there, 
workout. As soon as I finish workout, I'll create content or so a piece of content immediately after the workout. There's client stuff here and there, like throughout the day, like client check-ins. And obviously when we're when I'm doing face-to-face client, that filters in there somehow as well. And then it's studying. So right now I'm doing a lot of studying in the uh, the acting industry. So the dream for me is to be an actor. Um, and I know nothing about it. And I have zero networks, etc. So it's just part of that. As you probably know, same thing with coding is just stepping out of your comfort zone and going, this is what I want to do and just doing whatever feels right as much as you possibly can try to get into that that sort of world because it's just the, you know, it's the dream, it's the passion. So a lot of the day yeah, spent, spent around acting, trying to develop an American accent at the moment, that sort of stuff at the moment. Um, there you go. Yeah, so which, which is far harder than I thought it would be. Um, can I hear it yet? Hey? Can I hear your accent yet? Oh, God, I can try. Um, <laughs> give me a line. <laughs> I'm putting Talk- you on the spot here, man. Yeah, can I have a sentence to say? Um, say, uh, I guess if you said that. No, you can say, I want to be like Arnold in the movies. I want to be like Arnold in the movies. Tell you what, the rest of my routine, I'm going to try and do it in an American accent and tell me how bad it is. Um, so this is a standard American accent, essentially what the Hollywood accent is is yeah. called. So the afternoon will come around and I will then generally go for a walk of some sort, um, like listen to a podcast or an audio book or, or something. And then leading up into bedtime, you know, what's really strange about like right now, my meals have been very weird and random. I found myself like um, intermittently fasting for a majority of the day, like not being hungry, like at all. So I'm like forcing myself to eat, even though, you know, the end of the day, I might be on like 600 calories, but I won't be hungry at all, uh, which is really, really strange, I found. And then not, like nighttime routine, as soon as my, my girlfriend finishes work, I'll have like dinner cooked. I'm a little bit of a house bitch at the moment. So uh, I'll do all the cooking and the cleaning, all that sort of stuff during the day. Um, and then I'll have dinner sorted for us. We'll generally watch a show together and then I try to get in bed and you know diminish as much blue light exposure as I possibly can dark room try read a little bit before um before bedtime and every every night I'm generally in bed between like seven and eight o'clock which is interesting because it's still light outside so <laughs> that that makes things... I have ran into the same problem man yeah um, but yeah, inherently, what what I found strange as well from a circadian rhythm perspective is that I've never really slept well whilst I've been in Australia. But uh, originally, obviously from, from from England, I've always slept well there. Like throughout my whole life, always slept well. And whenever I go back to to visit family or on holiday, I always sleep incredibly well in the UK. Like always, you know. Um, Interesting. Yeah, like I and I, I, I've read research into. Usually, it takes around two years to for circadian rhythms to potentially adapt to a new environment. But mine just never has, and every time I go home, I sleep like a baby, and it's amazing, you know. Um, yeah, then I go to sleep, and it's pathetic always, <laughs> and um, and that's it. And get up the next day and just do the same. But obviously, like right now, like with, with podcasts, the, the wake-up times are very sporadic. Like sometimes I'll, like last night I slept for three hours, for example. Um, you know, the night before with that was an hour, literally, between the last podcast and then the, ne- the, the first podcast of the day. So 
very very random at the moment how are you feeling right now are you running on fumes or are you do you feel all right you know what's strange is that that i can survive off nothing like i can just keep keep really? going and keep going and keep going which is you know i'm absolutely fine with it i attempted to work out yesterday and it was just horrible like so workouts are very very affected by that i can definitely tell that but in terms of hunger like there's like I'm assuming ghrelin's going to be up somewhere through the roof with that uh, increased sympathetic state, but I'm not hungry at all, uh, which I'm kind of glad about. Otherwise, I become a fat shit pretty quickly, <laughs> you know, because I can. I'm like a really big eater too. So, um, like energy wise, like I've been up for you know, you know since twelve thirty this morning, and it's six o'clock now, and I'll just I'll be able to go the rest of the day absolutely fine with no naps or or anything like that. Yeah, it's, I think that, you know, so my master's degree, uh, it was actually in chrononutrition and studied kind of like circadian rhythms and oh, stuff like that. So definitely a topic that I have interest in and I actually have a little bit more of a background in. And, you know, I bet, I bet one of the things that probably doesn't help your situation a ton is those sporadic kind of wake up times and stuff like that, because, mm. you know, there's quite a quite a bit of decent literature kind of building that, Hey, you know, having a very consistent kind of sleep wake routine of getting up at the same times, going to bed at the same times and that sort of thing definitely helps with sleep there. So yeah. I, I think that that might be an area that could help. Yeah. And that's what I obviously, you know, yourself like, cool. There's the, there's the optimal, but then there's also the realistic of, well, life is also there as <laughs> yeah. well, you know? So I'm just trying to, drive as many carbohydrates before bed as much as I can to try and help, you know, magnesium, got melatonin there as well. And, um, it's not doing the trick at the moment, which, uh, <laughs> is yeah, a little man. bit frustrating. All I really care about, you know, obviously this is just a moment in time. It's not going to be forever, but I also know that going into the acting industry, some of the calls and stuff are quite ridiculous, you know? Um, you look at game of Thrones, for example, they shot 55 nights in a row with very minimal sleep, you know, and, I'm I'm fine with that. So um, it's one thing that I'm almost preparing my body for to go. Okay, we've got a yeah. big shoot. I'm like, cool. I'm good with that. You know. Yeah, man, for sure. Yeah, it's kind of getting you ready for what's to come here for you. Exactly, exactly. Um, enough about me. I've yammered on for a while, but um, <laughs> what I um, wanted to ask you was a little bit about books. Obviously, you, you read and, and research and study quite a bit. Is there a particular book that you've read, an article, might even be in something you've seen on TV or something or a show that has had a profound impact on your life in a positive way? Hmm. So are you talking like fitness stuff or just like in it, general? It can be either. You might have one for each. Like it doesn't matter. You can have a couple for each, but either. Okay. So the first two books I ever read, I still think to this day are a couple of really, really solid ones. So, the Hungry Hungry Caterpillar. <laughs> Is that no, one? <laughs> not that. The, the first two books I read like post high school, I should okay. say. All right. So one of them was The War of Art. That was a really good one. It It kind of talked about, you know, when you when you start to feel like, a little bit of resistance and wanting to learn a new skill or put yourself out there and stuff like that. That's probably more so a sign that, Hey, it's a good thing. You're getting out of your comfort zone. If you can perceive that as kind of a good thing and pushing yourself through that, it can definitely help. And 
that was was a book that definitely affected me going through college and definitely made myself, you know, try to push myself more. And when I felt that kind of urge to, ah, this is out of my comfort zone, I should not do this. It's like, shit, go back to thinking about that book and kind of push through it. So that definitely helped. And then the book Influence, that was also another really solid book. And that was more so about human behavior, stuff like that. If you're into that sort of thing, Robert Greene has a lot of books on that, like The Laws of Human Nature. He's got another one called Power. He's got another one called Mastery. All those are really solid ones. Books in kind of the marketing space and stuff like that. I would say Seth Godin is someone that I really like there. So a lot of his books are good. I'm trying to think of what else here. Those are the ones that kind of come to my mind kind of off the top of my head here. Oh, they're really good. Yeah. I mean, I love Seth going like the purple cow and, and one of his originals and he, he's Roden, Roden, written a lot of really, really interesting stuff. What, um, what is a book that you've read that you recommend people should check out that could potentially have a positive effect on their own life? What's what one of those, but it could be one of those or a different book. That's the book that they should go and get today. So I have a list of books that I usually recommend here. So I'm going to reach down and grab that. (laughs) Very efficient. I like that. So, okay. One of the books that I really like, but it is, it is not an easy read. Like it's complex and it's kind of challenging, but it's the book thinking fast and slow by Mm -hmm. Daniel Kahneman. So this book, it just, it talks about like human biases and how, we really need to try to like slow down and think about things before we make decisions or else we can fall into some of these typical traps that humans tend to fall into. Like that book, really, really solid book. I also really like certain kind of like biographies and stuff like that, just seeing about people's life. So I really like shoe dog. That was a story about the owner or the founder of Nike, Phil Knight. And everything he went through, that was really cool. Elon Musk has a biography that his story is just kind of crazy and, you know, can be kind of inspirational. Like, I definitely don't think I'm anywhere near that Elon Musk guy over here. But seeing where he is, you know, if, you, if you're if you a tenth of that, you know, you could do pretty well. So that was a good one. And then I mentioned the laws of human nature and Seth Godin books and stuff like that. But, you know, there's there's so many good books out there. There's a lot of stuff that you can read, but those those were a few that I think that I at least didn't think sucked and I thought were really, really solid books for me. What I um what I love about I, I've never read the book. I know of it, the thinking fast and slow, but I'm assuming this might be a principle of it was one thing that I found a big benefit in my own life was similar to what you said about what the book talks about is that slowing down and we need to think about things a lot is that you know, when people ask you a question, you almost impulsively just want to answer it really quick with the first thing that comes to your head. And then oftentimes you'll look back later and be like, fuck, why did I say that? You know, so when people ask me a question now, I don't answer straight away and it like freaks people out a little bit. Like they just sort of stare at me. I'm just like, oh, no, no, just give, I'm just, give me a second. I'm just thinking about the answer because I actually want to give you a good answer ra- rather than just the complete other, other shit that will come out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. I think that 
people are generally a little bit uncomfortable with silence, like during a conversation. And if there's kind of long pauses and if you sit there and kind of think about stuff, often they'll jump in and they'll start talking because they're uncomfortable with it. But I, I absolutely agree. Slowing down, taking a step back, trying to view things a little bit more kind of objectively, not kind of acting purely out of your emotion and stuff. I think it can definitely benefit people. Absolutely, absolutely. Now I want to be super respectful of your time. Firstly, how was my American accent on my attempt at it? So I thought it was really solid, man. Like, oh, wicked. It was good. You, there's definitely like certain <clears throat> like vowels and certain yeah. words that you could still pick up that accent for yeah. sure. But I, you could definitely tell a like one-to-one difference of, hey, you know, this definitely sounds more what sounds normal to me, you know? Yeah. Like, Okay, so to you, does it sound like I have an accent? But I can tell you have an American accent, yeah. Okay, gotcha. So, like, I, I definitely think that when you started speaking like that, it definitely sounded more normal and more American, and I, I thought it was good, man. Thank you, I appreciate that. I am, however, just for the people listening, if you think it was absolute shit, I am getting American accent. <laughs> co- I am about to start coaching. I'm not just going to go yeah. into the industry thinking I can do one, you know. Um, <laughs> I want to be good. I want to be good. Um, what, are you, uh, what are you working on is a question I love asking. Is what, What's tw- the rest of 2020 got in store for you? Yeah, man. So Revive Stronger, we've got a couple of things in the works here. I'm not sure how much they want me to say about the things cool. that are coming out yet, yeah. but it's it's stuff that we've we used to do a long time ago, and we think that now will be a good time to bring it back. So we've got a couple things kind of down the chute that we're working on there. Personally, I'm trying to learn the the skill of coding and stuff kind of around that area. So that's been fun to kind of work on and just develop new things. I just genuinely enjoy kind of learning so reading books stuff like that i'm trying to think if there's anything else in particular but outside of that i think that's kind of about it man no beautiful i love it i love that you're always wanting to pursue greatness and pursue being better and i think there's always i love when people do things that are completely a completely outside of their comfort zone but b so completely different left field of what they're also used to there's um um i can't remember the name of the book now but it talks about general generalism versus range oh it could be range yeah it could be range generalism versus like specialism or yeah like the people who are generalizing things will always do better than people who are specialized and i think that comes into play quite well there you don't know how the skill of learning code is going to be able to apply to what you're already doing or vice versa yeah i I absolutely think that once you once you start learning things, like you develop kind of how you learn and you get better at learning things. And the more you learn, I think that the more you're able to learn in other areas as well. Like it, I think it gives us kind of more, more reference points for stuff. Like if there was an alien that came down on earth and you had to explain to them what a horse is, that would be super challenging. It'd be like, okay, so there's this big and it has legs, but you don't know what that is. It it stands on these things that are kind of skinny and it'd be so hard to describe. But after they know what a horse is, it would be pretty easy to describe what a zebra is. Yeah. So like the more you learn, the more you're kind of able to draw certain things from other areas. And like you said, like I wanted it to be kind of out of left field. I wanted it to be something different that challenges myself and I definitely think that that can kind of work in other areas for sure. 
I just, a question that's popped in my mind. If you were to meet an alien, what an alien came to Earth, two things. What was the first thing you would ask it? And secondly, what would the first thing you would introduce it to as part of our culture? <laughs> oh, man. What would I, well, the first thing I would in- introduce it to is the gym, of course. I'd be like, hey, <laughs> this is where we go. We walk in to this room here and, you know, there's these plates that are kind of heavy and we pick them up and we grunt and then we start to sweat and then we walk out. That's what we do. And they'd be like, awesome. And I would introduce them to that. Now, what I would ask them, I would probably be like, so where'd you come from? And what are your people like? And is everything that we understand about our universe wrong? And, you know, what's this dark matter thing about to where, like 70% of the universe is created from something called dark matter and we don't even know what it is. And do you know why the universe is expanding at an ever accelerating rate and why we can't figure that out and what's going on there? And man, we could go down a big yeah, rabbit hole yeah. with the aliens. So for sure, man. <laughs> they would probably look at us and just be like, you, there's a reason why you guys are inferior because damn, you do yeah, some yeah. stupid shit. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Man, last, oh, yep. can i turn that around on you again oh yeah absolutely so the first question i would ask it is do space chicks have three boobs would be the first question <laughs> that would pop that's to a mind. very valid first question yeah i don't know yeah just wondering and the second thing i would introduce it to would be game of thrones we would sit down and binge watch game of thrones the entire eight seasons of it Awesome. That's awesome. I think that would be a nice introduction to our culture, for sure. Like, here's what we're watching, yeah? This doesn't exist. And be like, they'd be freaked the fuck out. They would have no clue what's going on, for hmm. sure. <laughs> Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And lastly, where can people reach out, find you, see what you guys are up to? Yeah, man. So, revivestronger.com. We also have a podcast, the Revive Stronger podcast. And then... On Instagram, Team Revive Stronger, and then me personally, I'm at Ryan J. Solomon. And all those will be in the uh, show notes below. As always, Ryan, it has been an absolute pleasure again, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me, man.